0: Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony,
1: And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. It's new and exciting in your world this weekend. Earlier this month,
0: Oregon decriminalized the possession of all illegal drugs within its borders. Hold
1: the phone. Hold <laughs> the phone.
0: you got to be kidding me.
1: Oregon, of all places.
0: It, that includes... This isn't just marijuana. This includes heroin, cocaine, meth, oxycodone. This is an attempt, correctly, in my opinion, to treat drug addiction as a health issue,
1: not a criminal issue. Well, I got to tell you, Ant, I've been meaning to try heroin, and this just cinches it. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, I'm, have, I'm going. To or- I'm going to Oregon. I'm going to have a heroin holiday.
0: Apparently, you can use it, you can possess it, but selling it is still illegal. Ah, so there is still one problem in the mix. Isn't there, there is a problem, but it's not your problem. Well, it is if I go to buy some.
1: No, you're okay buying. Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know about that. If selling it is illegal, buying it would be too. Although if you can manage that small hurdle, then you're okay. Then you're home free. So currently around 300,000
0: people are housed in state and federal prisons for drug law violations in this country. That's up from only 25,000 in 1980. So we've had over a tenfold increase. Well, this is what happens when you have a war on drugs. Exactly. Exactly. But it gets worse because those numbers exclude nearly 10 million people who are out of prison but under criminal justice supervision for drug crimes. One could argue that putting these people in prison is a sad but necessary cost in the fight against the drug trade. But only around 11% of federal drug offenders are high-level suppliers. Nearly half are street dealers, couriers, and mules. And research indicates that imprisoning these people has no public safety benefit at all because they're easily and rapidly replaced. One could go further and argue that people who were in prison for drug crimes also committed other crimes like theft or assault, for which they should be imprisoned. But here again, the data disagree. In 2016, there were more than 1.5 million drug arrests in the U.S. 80% were for possession only. Finally, one could argue that incarceration has positive effects beyond the numbers we're discussing here because the threat of prison deters people from using drugs. But evidence indicates that prison isn't much of a deterrent. Pew Research compared state drug imprisonment rates with the incidence of drug use across cities and states in the U.S. and found that harsher sentences and greater incarceration rates had no discernible impact on drug use. In short, not only is drug addiction truly a health problem, the evidence suggests that treating it as a criminal problem is beneficial neither to the community nor to the drug users. Unfortunately, the misapplication of criminal law to social problems isn't without precedent. Prior to the mid-1800s in the United States, bankruptcy was treated as a criminal issue. If you couldn't pay your debts, you were sent to prison. Today, of course, bankruptcy is treated as a financial issue, not a criminal issue, so much so that it's bizarre to modern people to imagine someone being jailed for being poor. If the rest of us can follow Oregon's example, hopefully one day people will think it just as bizarre that one
1: would incarcerate someone because of a drug addiction. So what we're looking at here, if I can use the language of your profession, is an inelastic demand. Yeah. People want drugs. It seems to never change. Yeah. And they'll do whatever they do to go get them. And they'll even take risks to go get them. And making their lives harder only makes their lives harder. It has no other effect. I'm of a mind that we should co-opt Nancy Reagan's approach to this a long time ago and say the drug war. Just say no. (laughs) Right. And this is actually what we see in state after state after state with ballot initiatives. We had one here in Arizona a couple of months back, and now they're already selling recreational weed at the dispensaries. Lo and behold, my beautiful town of Tucson did not become a post apocalyptic hellscape. There's obviously nothing wrong here. Everything is working more or less the way it did six months ago. As long as that keeps happening, sooner or later, the drug warriors on the right are going to have to stop and ask themselves some serious questions. I understand that this hurts their heads and they don't like to do it, but nonetheless, You've got to look at the thing that you created and ask, is this working as I thought it would? And with drug laws, the answer is always no. But it's weird
0: that it's got to come about as a result of a ballot initiative. How disconnected from the people are representatives that this can't come up through the normal course of legislative events?
1: You've asked and answered your own question, right? there. <laughs> <laughs> right. To say elected leader is also to say out of touch. Well, I've got something, I think, more fun, although what could be more fun than legalizing every drug on the market? But nonetheless, I proceed. And I have to admit, before I even say a word here, that I have not yet located a source for this that I would deem trustworthy.
0: Oh, this is going to be fun. I just
1: just want all the haters out there who are getting ready to start typing a vicious email, (laughs) I understand that the sun is not a reputable source. Nonetheless, this has been reported in oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 places that I've visited in the last day or two. The Pentagon apparently has admitted that it's been testing wreckage from UFO crashes. There are all kinds of things that they have learned from these things, not the least of which is how to slow down time and how to bend light and things like this. So, look, I don't know how true any of that is, but it's interesting that this would hit now. In the last three or four years, You find the federal government has loosened up its tight control over UFO things. We all saw some footage taken from an American fighter plane of a UFO banking and flying away at speeds literally impossible to anything we understand as an aircraft. And isn't this interesting that it's starting to dribble out a lot more now? And you might remember it. I said when that film was released that what was going to happen next would be a trickle of news items that come out month after month after month until there's so many of them that somebody can walk in front of a camera and say, well, of course, you've all seen this now. Right. So it's not a shock. You dribble out the truth over time. I suspect it's once a month or so, once every couple of months, and then it'll be once every couple of weeks. And before you know it, everybody's going to be saying, well, of course, we always knew there were UFOs.
0: I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but If you recall, back when Jimmy Carter was running for office, he said he had an encounter, a personal encounter with a UFO. He saw it or something. I forget what it was. And he said if elected, he would make public all of the government's documentation on UFOs. He was elected, and you never heard
1: anything more about it. Right. Trump said the exact same thing and had the exact same result.
0: Right. It makes one wonder. You think at least he would say, well, look, I promised I'd make all this public, but it turns out there's nothing there. But complete silence? That's weird.
1: That's what happens when somebody finds out there was a lot more underneath the water. Right. And that iceberg looks way bigger if you can start looking down instead of up.
0: Yeah, that's when you you have a big
1: uh-oh. <laughs> you just brush it under the carpet. Yeah, I tend not to ridicule people who say they've seen these things, largely because I have seen these things. And anybody who ever lived in Southern California, where I did, and drove to Vegas through hours and hours of desert, sees all kinds of things. Of course, that's where they would be testing things. I don't know the origin of what I saw, but I saw three lights in a triangular fashion way, way off to my left as I drove the highway in the dead of night to get to Vegas. And the three lights pulsated really quickly. And then the thing disappeared and appeared on the right-hand side of the highway. Uh, now, from where I sat, that was probably 100 miles, mm-hmm. 75 miles, right? It was really quite a distance, but I don't know what it was. And I'm assuming if the government wanted to test certain things, this is where they would go to do it, right? Over desert in the United States in the West. The short answer is, is, I don't know what I saw. I got back to home and I told the guy in the apartment next to me and he said, oh, yeah, we've all seen that stuff. It's just you know, a feature of living in the West.
0: You might ask, you know, well, why start dribbling this stuff out now? One possibility, if indeed there is something to be dribbled, one possibility is that with the plethora of cell phone cameras, people are gonna figure this out on their own anyway.
1: Well, that's the weird thing, because I've always said, I've always said, I know three things because of ubiquitous cell phones. Bigfoot does not exist. Aliens are not landing everywhere and black people are not lying when they say that they have trouble with the police. Now, the only reason I can think of that the government would be softening us up for an announcement on this kind of thing is that they know that somebody's coming for a visit publicly soon enough. Hmm. That's the only reason I would do it. You got to look at this logically. If you don't have to admit something and clearly you don't, you probably keep it under wraps, but if there's the off chance you get made as an unbelievable liar, you probably want to get this out in the public. So we'll see what happens next. I'm just curious, right? Right. And it's a lot of really terrible sources. It's every fly-by-night British website that you can (laughs) find. And I'll be looking for a better source as the days go by. Maybe we'll get back to this in the months to come. But Ant, this, of course, brings us to the foolishness of the week. Got a guess? I do. You're going to ask me that. I love asking. Yeah, I prepare for this now. And I ran
0: across something on Monday or Tuesday, and I thought, oh, this is probably what James is going to talk about. And I forget what it
1: was. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you this. It's not the FBI informant panic in the far right. Turns out after that little escapade in D.C., people are yammering away to every authority figure they can find. And this has caused much tumult to the friendships on the right. So it's not that. We're going to talk about that later when we bring this over to the bonus material. For this part of the program, though, I want to talk about New York's governor, Governor Cuomo who has admitted that all kinds of people died in nursing homes under his watch, and here's where it gets ridiculous, and they sat on the data and would not admit to it. You've got to be kidding me. Now, the Democrats were all over their Republican friends for not lining up to get rid of Donald Trump in the impeachment process, a sentiment which I'm actually rather sympathetic towards. But where are they now when we learn that Governor Cuomo is, for all intents and purposes, a mass murderer? Where are they? Where are they screaming for his head? And in fairness, a few of them are, but not many. And I think with the Trump fiasco on the one hand and the Cuomo fiasco on the other, you see just how bad partisanship is here. When you can put these blinders on and say, nothing my team does is beyond the pale, but everything the other team does is. Now we've really got a problem. Well, I think
0: it's even worse than what you're describing because I saw articles way back in May and from reputable sources talking about people dying because Cuomo ordered COVID patients to be sent into nursing homes to be cared for. I remember all that. And I was astounded that there was no hue and cry over this. There was the
1: one article, two articles, and then silence. Now there's a data dump. Yeah. Now we know how many. Mm -hmm. Now we know that it's not a guess. It absolutely happened. And it absolutely happened because of his policies. Let's not lose sight of this. It's not like this had to happen. It's like this did happen because of what he did. And then the part that's really beyond the pale, once you've realized that you've made a terrible mistake and that people are dying, you cover up the data. And that last part, that's what makes him a mass murderer because he could have stopped it. He could have said, look, we thought this was going to work. It didn't work. Now we got to try something else. And I don't think he would have caught a lot of hell for that. Yep. Because we were in new and uncharted territory. I don't know what will work and what won't. I've got my best guess. And I'm assuming everybody's working on a best guess scenario. So I'm willing to cut some people some slack. When you're all on best guess basis, most of the best guesses are going to be wrong. But when you find out what the truth was and then you don't let anybody report it, you're a terrible, terrible human being. This is so awful, I don't even know if I want to call it the foolishness of the week. If you think James
0: sounds grumpy, try dragging him out of bed to record an episode. It's a unique experience in expletives. So do your part by trudging over to patreon.com wordsandnumbers where for about the price of a cup of coffee, you can buy him a cup of coffee. Max Borders joins us this week, Max is author of After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals, and The Social Singularity, A Decentralist Manifesto. Max is also co-founder of the event experience Future Frontiers and founder of Social Evolution, an organization dedicated to liberating humanity through innovation. This is part two of a
2: two-part episode not everything can be an emergency, not even a pandemic, that we continue to spend ourselves into oblivion. And I say us, it's not us, it's authorities. And we're having to go along for the ride. At some point, that's got to give. You guys are much, much better economists. I am not into any of this magical monetary theory, this MMT that says it's okay to spend indefinitely. I'm worried about that. And I'm worried that people in power have those, quote unquote, experts and authorities whispering in their ears right now. Oh, this is fine. We can do debt spending for eternity. It's just fine. We make it up. (laughs) It's, (laughs) It's magical thinking.
1: I'm actually kind of happy that this has reached the level it's reached because I think we're dealing now with eventualities that are unavoidable. And the faster we can get through those unavoidable outcomes, the faster we can reconstitute and do better. That's the positive spin you put on it. It'll get us through the catastrophe faster.
0: I share your whams about modern monetary theory. My knee-jerk reaction is that we wouldn't be talking about it at all, except that some politicians discovered it as a fringe economic theory and figured out that they could use it to dress up what they really wanted to do in academic garb, and that is to print money.
1: But Ant, you know that all they have to do is make these trillion dollar coins and then every problem will be solved.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the problems will be solved as long as they're in office. Somebody else can deal yeah, with the problem. That's right. But it's kind of interesting. It's the same phenomenon I have seen in companies and in higher education also. When institutions start to hit the ropes that they're running out of money, they're looking at potential bankruptcy, it's counterintuitive, but I've seen it repeatedly that they suddenly go on spending sprees. I can't explain why that's the case, but I've seen it happen repeatedly. And I can't help but draw the same analogy to the federal government. And what have we done in the past year? We've spent, I guess, twice going on three times as much as we typically spend in a given year. And now what we're doing, we're talking about spending even more. (laughs) Max, you talk about how the United States has changed economically, how it's changed politically, but then you go further and talk about cultural change, that we were an honor culture in which James has said this repeatedly, that he believes that people would behave much more nicely if they knew that there was a potential punch in the nose in exchange for things that they say. The honor culture where things would turn to violence if you insult somebody, and that morphs into a dignity culture in which I'm not going to react violently to what you say. And then now you say it's turned into a victim culture, which is kind of a hybrid of the two of I'm not going to react violently to what you say, but I am going to co-opt the government to met violence upon you for what you say. How is it that this cultural change has come about?
2: I want to encourage listeners to pursue this line a little further. There's sociologists called Campbell and Manning who presented this theory. And their idea is that with the second phase, with dignity culture, which is essentially, I think it's familiar to us as pretty liberal thinking, at least old style liberal thinking, which is pretty much sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us. That when you say something to someone, we tolerate speech, but we have to learn to be a little bit thick skinned. And with the advent of modern media, for better or worse, we're starting to see a phenomenon called an availability cascade. One of the best minds to really cotton onto this is Cass Sunstein, who was from the Obama administration, you may remember, but he's a brilliant guy. He has a co-author from Duke, Timur Curran, who co-wrote the paper on this. But the idea of the availability cascade is that something bad happens in the media. We see some event like someone being mistreated by the police, and let's say they're also a person of color. When that happens, that narrative becomes quickly propagated. This very highly localized and rare event gets propagated for being a very common event. And so the reaction to an availability cascade is that this somewhat rare event is actually quite widespread. We just happen to catch it. It's the tip of the iceberg. Now, this is not to say that we don't have trouble with policing. We absolutely do. But some of the narrative is that if you show police violence against people of color, but you don't show police violence against the majority population, What you'll get is this perception that is, this is what we thought all along, that we have this society of white supremacy and so on. This is an example of the kind of thing where we're seeing now in cancel culture, where the slightest off-color joke or slight or anything like that can be taken to the nth degree through social media, people get fired, their careers are ended. It's not to say that people aren't entitled to free speech. They are. But I think we need to balance against that a sense of proportionality and charity and even vindication for people, though we are all sinners or fallen or whatever you like in your tradition. Sometimes expression comes with unpleasantness. And if we're going to have a situation of free speech and toleration, we're going to have to learn to have more thick skin. That's dignity culture. This idea that the mediating institutions of dignity culture are no longer with us means that people feel like they have to agitate for these institutions to do their job. But the mediating institutions' jobs was never to protect us from words, for example, or protect us from people's ugly, racist, or otherwise sexist, or whatever is thing you like. It was never their job to protect people against those sentiments. It's always been under the liberal conception to protect people from some sort of demonstrable injury in court. So now we have these sort of online lynch mobs and kangaroo courts. And you guys are familiar with these now because they're everywhere, especially in higher education. This victimhood culture really is about highlighting victimhood to the point that people are becoming psychologically weak. And then that is the saddest part of this. Part of, I believe, the breakdown of American society is that we're now starting to divide people into classes of victim and and victimized or oppressor oppressed. And that's been going on for a very long time through this strange and wonderful verbiage of not postmodernism, but critical theory that has leeched in very simplified form into academia first and then outward from that into corporate boardrooms and now it's wide scale society. And I think that is unfortunate because that engenders illiberal ideas of the kind of thing that you might've read in 1984. Only now we have whole hive minds complicit in ending people's lives or making them look bad or whatever. It's burning out of control. I think it's fracturing us further.
1: You nail down pretty well our industry. If you're on a college campus, you see exactly what you just talked about. There's a cancel culture and the lionization of victim status. And if you look at them from any distance, right, even just a couple of feet away, these trends are ludicrous. And yet they're harming people on such a level at this point that I don't even know what to say about it. It seems that contrary to our belief that people are generally decent They're really indecent in these ways, and they're ruining each other in very definite, deep sorts of ways. When you look at a human being and you say, you said this thing back in high school, so you're not permitted to have a career anymore. It's a little thick and deep at this point. And I'm wondering how you think we're ever going to get past this.
2: The only way I can see getting past this, the way I propose in the book, and this is rather tentative is to embrace integral liberalism. And integral liberalism is my version of good old classical liberalism, except I upgrade it with the notion of practice. That we are trying to seek understanding with one another in weaving shared reality, but also in seeking truth, that there be entry points for the way the world actually is. Part of the problem I see with the cultural phenomenon is a breakdown also of what I refer to as collective intelligence. Or sense making. The cultural patterns depend for their life sometimes on falsehood or on distortion. And there's so many distortions out there right now. So I tentatively propose not only that we return to some of these practices that we have thought of as just abstract rules, that when we live by notions of integrity, of nonviolence, and so on, that that will have a self regulating mechanism. But The search for truth, the search for proportionality of response with respect to truth, I think would also work. So in thinking about how cultural phenomena relate to collective intelligence, that is what we can know, there are better definitions of it, but what can we know or at least have access to together in intersubjective agreement about some multifaceted truth? I refer to that as collective intelligence. We've got to do something that makes holding certain beliefs have a consequence or a cost, besides just getting applause on social media or holding a view and it giving you a temporary sense of glowing, sense of rectitude or whatever on the one hand. And then it has these long term ramifications that are detrimental to society. If we don't, for example, understand the magnitude and root causes of police violence. And we say everything under the sun is racism, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And that was the answer from before. So collective intelligence, I propose tentatively, and I'm still grappling with this conception and better minds than mine will maybe complete the idea. But the idea of a perceptions market that allows you the ability to put your money where your mouth is in terms of the veracity of some claim in the mainstream media, for example. And it may be that that outlet is what is the one that gets bid up or down based on the veracity of their claims and so on. But if you want to challenge a certain kind of view and have this corresponding or parallel way of introducing new evidence, people can evaluate that evidence and then make a claim about whether or not something is accurate or not in some sense. This is, of course, deeply problematic with what we saw the other day with GameStop, It really challenges one to think about coordinating a short seller, for example, if you remember the GameStop example, is that you had all these people essentially collaborating to buy this relatively valueless stock for a company that they probably didn't think would grow. So the assumption is that everybody wants to know the truth about the long-term prospects of this company. And a short seller would say, I don't think that the prospects of this company are very good, at least in the medium term, so I'm going to short this company. And then you have these collaborators that are architecting a false reality by bidding up the stock only to, excuse my mouth, F the short sellers. It's interesting phenomenon, but also this kind of market as such can't assume that what we're after is truth that we're bidding on. It feels very nihilistic right now, but I think there's something in that direction that we're going to be able to do to at least rein in the problem of polluted information ecosystems. Because that is also leading to really terrible social problems right now.
1: Max, that's about all the time we've got today. Why don't you tell people when they can get your book and how they can get your book? Because having looked at it, this is one that people out there I think are going to really want to take a look at.
2: I really appreciate that. I can't thank you enough for that. I'll say that the best way to find it right now is on Amazon. You can buy the Kindle edition currently and I'll keep it uh, till this air so that if folks want to get the Kindle edition, it's really cheap right now. The reason I'm doing that is I'm really hoping that people of conscience will read it, love it and rate it because ratings really do a tremendous amount for the visibility of the book in the Amazon rankings, as well as in their algorithms for positioning certain kinds of content. My goal is not to make money with this book. I will reinvest every dime into propagating these ideas. If you buy the book, you're enriching Jeff Bezos, Mm -hmm. but you're also propagating the book (laughs) through your reviews and through your reading. I hope you'll go to Amazon and make Jeff richer and also help me feed my kids and get these ideas out there a little more.
1: And we'll make this as easy as we possibly can for you by including a link in the show notes to the book listing on Amazon. I criticized near everything, but I thought this book was an absolute corker. It was really fantastic,
2: Max. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. You're going to make me cry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Max. That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week right here at the usual time. And we'll do this all over again, except next week it will be much more interesting. I should mention (laughs) that next week I'll have a co-host, which is why it will be more interesting. Anyway, I digress. In the meantime, check us out on Twitter. Handles are in the show notes. What are you talking about you'll have a co-host? You have a co-host now. Just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) This is... Are this, you is the pregnant me? Pause. <laughs> this is the pregnant pause where you're supposed to say something. Show up next week for words. <laughs> Send us email words
0: and numbers at where are we? Words and numbers podcast, words
1: and numbers podcast at gmail.com. And with that, you people see the pain that I'm in <laughs> on a pretty regular basis. You can also join the backstage Facebook group where the conversation continues and people are marginally well-behaved. At least it's been better there since the election has gotten into our rearview mirrors. But remember, be nice to each other. It's time. It's long past time. Go see what you can do. Be proud of yourself. Go try hard. Aunt, I guess finally I can take my leave of you.
0: <laughs> see you next week, James.